Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I welcome you today to this exciting installment of the African American voice in classical music. Today we are honored to begin the Trailblazer series. This is the inaugural interview of the Trailblazers series, which serves to highlight and celebrate those artists who paved the way for others to follow in paths of successful careers in classical music and the performing arts. Today's artist is someone who is legendary and dear to those who are aficionados of opera and classical music. The renowned operatic tenor was born in 1934 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Like many singers, he had his early musical roots in the church. While at the Metropolitan Opera, he sang 28 different roles from 26 operas, especially those of Mozart, Verdi, Puccini, Strauss, and Wagner. From 1961 to 1977, he also sang at the New York City Opera. Now, I could go on and on and on about these different accomplishments. There's so many to name, but I want you to speak to this legend and hear from him yourself. And that person is none other than legendary Metropolitan Opera tenor George Shirley. Good afternoon, Mr. Shirley. Good afternoon. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for being on today. It's quite an honor to have you share about your career with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate that. Indeed. Now, I would like to just to start, Mr. Shirley, by uh, speaking, maybe going back to uh, talking about maybe perhaps your childhood. I was reading, of course, in your bio that you were born in 1934, and that was a time where, you know, a lot of things, a lot of hard work and effort definitely had to happen uh, for someone to uh, basically achieve the stature that you had that you have in the world of opera. Could you maybe talk about your childhood and how your whole love affair with opera began? Yes, Mr. McCoy. Well, my parents were both musical. Uh, I started singing in church. Uh, My parents and I formed a trio. I'm an only child. (laughs) My mother had a lovely soprano voice. My dad played three instruments, all by ear, and sang a little bit himself. And uh, I started performing with them when I was about four years old in churches in and around Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, by the time we moved to uh, Detroit in early 1940s, um, I was playing a little bit of a piano. I started studying piano when I was five, although you wouldn't know it by the way I play today. <laughs> um, and the music continued in our home and in church. I did uh, my first uh, song recitals in church. I studied uh, piano and singing uh, songs with one of the organists at our church, Ebenezer Amy Church in Detroit. And uh, by the time I got to high school, I knew that my life was going to be focused on music in some way. Uh, Performance was not really my... uh, main focus, although I was singing a lot. I sang in high school the tenor solos to Messiah. My first experience with the Verdi Requiem came in one of our spring concerts when we did the uh, opening uh, Kyrie on one of our concerts, and I sang the tenor solos. But my focus by the time I got to 12th grade was music education. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and so uh, I went to Wayne, what was then Wayne University, is now uh, a state school, Wayne State, and took a degree in music education. Uh, my interests musically were choral. Uh, I played in the band also. I played euphonium. And symphonic music, um, recital literature, uh, solo literature, much less interest uh, in opera, actually not very much of an interest in opera. And uh, I uh, started teaching high school choral music in 1955, and I was drafted into the military in 56 and eventually wound up in the United States Army Chorus in Washington, D.C. And it was there that uh, I found myself surrounded by uh, singers, men who were uh, drafted like I, <coughs> and who were uh, 
many of whom had careers interrupted or were planning to have careers as opera singers or on Broadway. And toward the end of my two-year uh, stint, uh, one of my friends talked me into going to sing for his teacher, an older fellow who was teaching privately in Washington, D.C., and who had had an operatic career. And so I went and sang for this old uh, fellow who was a tenor, and uh, he was the first person to say to me uh, that he felt I could have a career. Now, this was of interest because he was Caucasian, and this was in 1957, actually 58, at a time when there were not uh, very many black opera singers and certainly not very many black tenors uh, singing mm -hmm. uh, operatically in the United States. The only one that I knew of was fellow named William Dupree, who was in the Singing Sergeants, the Air Force uh, singing unit. And Bill was singing a couple of roles with the New York City Opera at that time. So I thought about, uh, he said, you study with me, I'll, I can guarantee you'll have a career. Well, that was that was a pretty heavy statement coming from someone who had uh, been an opera singer and also who was Caucasian, uh, looking at me as a black man. So I thought, well, uh, I'll, I think I'll try to, I'll give this a try. I'll give it two years um, because I didn't want to find myself, uh, say, ten years down the road, having gone back to Detroit and resumed my teaching career, and then wondering whether I could have made the grade as an opera singer. So I uh, extended my period of service for an extra year so I'd have an income and benefits to take care of my my wife and our newborn baby. And I studied with this old fellow for a year, and he gave me an idea of what it would take to be an opera singer. He gave me a technical approach that uh, was uh, was efficient. And uh, so in 1959, I was discharged. I was able to get a, a contract with a small opera company in Woodstock, New York. And I started my career. Uh, the only thing approaching an operatic role that I had in my repertoire at that time was the role of Oedipus in Oedipus Rex. I had sung that uh, with the Wayne University Glee Club in 1955 when the uh, conductor approached me and asked me if I would consider doing the role. We did not have an opera program at Wayne. It was a music education school. So I enjoyed that experience, but it did not point me, uh, consciously at least, in the direction of uh, having an operatic career. So when I started singing professionally, uh, I had only that role and that experience under my belt. Uh, I was a very fine musician. I could read anything you put in front of me because I'd been trained uh, musically in the public schools of Detroit, which at that time had one of the best systems of music education in the country. So learning the music was no big deal. I sang five operatic roles that summer. The company was very small. It was a perfect place for me to start my career. Uh, auditorium seated about 200, 225 people. We sang with two pianos. Uh, we did not have a chorus, so there was a lot of judicious cutting going on and doubling. I uh, made my debut as Eisenstein and Deflator Mouse. Everything was in English, so I didn't have to worry about languages. The only language I'd formally studied was French, uh, and I picked up the rest of it once I got into the business. Uh, but I debuted as Eisenstein, and then I sang Rodolfo in La Boheme, uh, Belmonte in The Abduction from the Seraglio, Haroun in Bizet's first opera, Jamile, and Torquemada in Ravel's L'Heure Espagnole. So that was the beginning of my professional operatic career. And again, I, I think it's important to point out that I was well-trained as a musician. So I had the, the tools available to me uh, to begin the career, even though I had not spent my undergraduate years and or most of my life up to that point focusing on becoming an opera singer. I tell my students today that you really don't know what you're going to do with your life <laughs> because I use my own life as an example of that. Uh, my preparation was as a musician and a musician who sang. And opera came along, and 
I found that indeed I had what it took to move into that genre of performance. I was enough of a natural ham, so acting came fairly easily. So God had given me everything I needed, and when the when it became apparent that this was going to be my life, I was fairly comfortable with it and became extremely comfortable with it as the years rolled on. So that in, in, a, in, a, in a few words, that's how I was guided into this business. Initially, I, I wasn't really interested in opera, but it became the major focus of my performance life. And that's such a fine point, Mr. Shirley, because a lot of singers of, of this generation now, I find a lot of uh, singers my age and, and even younger, when you talk to them about going to school to major in music or they're going to be professional opera singers and they haven't set in their mind that's the only thing they're, they're going to do. But I find a lot of times you have to you have to have other jobs. You might have to teach. You might have to do this and, and that to supplement your income. So that was such a perfect uh, example, whereas, you know, you weren't necessarily uh, interested at first in opera, but you still had other avenues because you were prepared in music education. Yeah, pre- preparation is, is fundamental, especially in this day and age. Uh, the arts have never been uh, uh, something that uh, is, is absolutely secure. So anyone going uh, in, going to New York to establish a career has got to have something else going, going for them in order to be able to make a living. I fortunately had my teaching degree, so when I went to New York City with a wife and baby to support, uh, I was able to teach. I worked as a substitute teacher once I was able to uh, pa- uh, pass the exam. I had to wait until the exam was given. Uh, and then once uh, I took the exam and passed it, then I was able to substitute, uh, work two or three days out of a week, earn enough money to put food on the table and a roof over our heads. And if I had a uh, an audition coming up, then I could take a day off before the audition and get myself vocally in shape and go and do the audition. Um, the first year that I was there, uh, the I think the teaching... Uh, the exam was given in November, so I had to work up to that point at whatever I could find. I got a job, a church job, and a job singing in Jewish temple, a Reformed temple. I sold uh, uh, cigarettes at <laughs> Goldsmith Brothers' uh, <laughs> uh, uh, department store down the Wall Street district. Um, I did temporary office work. I did whatever I could to make a living. Um, and you have to do that. The day, actually, a few years later, when I entered the Met Auditions for the second time and, and won, the night that it, uh, of the day that I won the Met Auditions, I was up until 2 a.m. the next morning doing backup in a, a recording session for a French pop singer. So <laughs> you had you have to be flexible. You have to have uh, other means at your disposal in order to survive in New York City until you begin to get your career going. So young people who come to, yeah, young people who come to, to to study in universities today, those who are able to take double majors are very smart. Mm, mm, it's a, tough, but they're smart. <laughs> That's a perfect point because, you, like you said, you definitely have to have more than one tool in the toolbox. I mean, it, it's it's so competitive out here, and just singing or just playing an instrument that simply won't do. I want to go back to uh, when you mentioned about uh, having some of your first experiences, musical experiences in the church, and I understand that it was uh, the Ebenezer AME Church there in Detroit uh, where you you know began to sing and so forth, but. Aside from church, what would you say was the overall receptiveness of the African-American community uh, to you singing opera, per se? Well, it's very interesting because those of us who have made our careers and and continue to make our careers in in so-called classical music, whether it's opera or concert, recitals, what have you, uh, unless we are performing in a venue in an area that is basically African-American. When you look out in the audience, you don't see that many African-Americans represented. 
um, because again, what we do, uh, we we perform in uh, repertoires that had their birth in Europe, not in the United States. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the popular musicians in this country, uh, the black musicians who sing R&B and and who perform rap today, and Less so jazz, interestingly enough, because jazz has almost become uh, a classical, it is a classical kind of art form. So uh, jazz in, uh, is supported more today by uh, whites than blacks. Blacks are more focused mm. on R&B and the more contemporary styles. But my point being that those of us who perform as opera singers and sing classical literature Whenever we look out in the audience in, in, in large halls, we find very few uh, black uh, uh, members of the audience, and that's that's law. That's always been the case, unless we're singing at a say a traditionally black uh, institution or something like that. Um, so, classical music generally in this country is an is a minority art form, and by that I mean that classical music is supported by a minority of Caucasians as well as a minority of of uh, non-Caucasians. Uh, the popular uh, genres of performance are the ones that fill the arenas, the football mm. stadium, with, with audience. So it's sort of natural that uh, classical music, which draws a minority of whites, is going to draw an even smaller minority of blacks, but because right. we because we love what we do, we love the music, we understand its value. Uh, this is what we this is what we're called by God to do, and that's what we do. And hopefully, we try and we try to uh, spark more of an interest in this music uh, on the part of members of our own community. But it is a minority art form. There's no getting around that. Mr. Shirley, you know, I've noticed something very interesting in my time living here in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., and, of course, I'm sure you're familiar because you used to teach at the University of Maryland at College Park. But what I've noticed is that um, the African-American community here especially, and it's probably the same in other places, the churches almost sense. Uh, service, concert halls in this city, at the African-American churches, you could find performances of all the major works from Mozart's Requiem to the, uh, the Verdi Requiem and so forth in the churches. So it seems like the African-American community, uh, as traditionally the church has served as the concert stage, and we tend to go to all of the concerts on the church circuit in their packed. But like you mentioned, when you go to the Kennedy Center, I guess was at a concert, as a matter of fact, you look out into that audience, it's only a few representatives, so you—that's definitely a valid point. Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's. I think that in some of the churches uh, in our large cities, you will find today, unfortunately, you'll find less in the way of the uh, classical music being presented. The gospel mm -hmm. influence become, has become stronger over the decades, and a lot of churches do basically only that. Uh, now and then, I mean. You don't find, say, performances of Messiah uh, presented as often as uh, was the case uh, maybe 40 years ago. People may mm -hmm. still sing the Hallelujah Chorus, but uh, when it comes to doing uh, the full oratorio or, or much of it, say, at Easter or at, at Christmas, you don't find that. And that, that it's understandable because for so many decades in this country, uh, classical music was considered to be the only music that was of value, which was mm. just as short-sighted as uh, the other way around. So uh, I find that a lot of uh, young people, uh, young blacks in particular, uh, for instance, they don't know spirituals. They know gospel, but they don't know spirituals. Uh, when it comes to doing something, uh, their chorus from Beethoven's Mount of Olives or, again, Messiah or... Uh, uh, Elijah, you don't hear those uh, performed as often in the churches as one used to. And part of that has come from the, the thrust on the part of, I think, many uh, religious leaders and others to to focus on defining 
who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. And, and and holding that up, building that, constructing it, uh, and shining a light on on our history to to extract from our history more of the musical language of uh, of we as an uh, descendants of Africa. So uh, that's an, and that's a valid thing to do. But the problem is that quite often uh, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. <laughs> I remember uh, in Rochester, New, uh, New York, uh, a few years ago, I was there for the Gateways Festival. And uh, Armenta Hummings, who founded that festival, uh, before the Sunday performance, she would ask some of us who were going to be involved in the performance to go to some of the local churches to um, uh, perform something and as an advertisement for what was going to happen in the festival later in the day. And we went to a church on this particular Sunday, a large church, beautiful edifice, and discovered that when the black congregation moved into this church, they took out the pipe organ that was there. And what they wanted was the Hammond organ, because the Hammond organ was the organ that one grew up with in the storefront churches in the black community. So they took out a perfectly good pipe organ, and all they had, and they were happy with it, was the Hammond organ. And I thought to myself, my heavens, they moved into this magnificent church structure, this church building, and moved out of the the storefront, and they took out the instrument that was built for that edifice and substituted the Hammond organ, which functioned in the storefront, which is sort of like buying a Cadillac and taking the engine out and putting a Chevrolet engine in the Cadillac. It, just, it, it was an effort on their part to try to, to, to again, define blackness, I guess, for themselves and for their congregation, which didn't, it just didn't make much sense to me. I mean, if you, if you are going to move into, into a mansion out of the storefront because you want to be in that mansion and you, you appreciate that mansion, then why not learn to appreciate everything else in that mansion? Especially something that is uh, a lot, uh, supports and speaks musically in such a powerful way. I'm sorry, the Hammond organ uh, does its thing, but the the, the mag- majestic sound of a pipe organ can't be duplicated by that. And Certainly. not learn to appreciate that, I think, is robbing yourself of something that can just expand your appreciation of, of your musicality and everything else. So this 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 kind of this desire to identify and to define who we are is we have to go through that we have to do that but again hopefully without again throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> well, you know, Mr. Shred, I'm from a very small town, Petersburg, Virginia, and I can relate to every single thing that that you said in terms of. Uh, the experience of the church when I was raised in the church, the, the music was primarily gospel and so on and so on. But um, my experiences here in D.C., most I would I would say probably ninety percent of the African American churches here in the city they have both organs, and there's such a rich diversity of music because you know this is like uh, it's only the capital, <laughs> the nation's capital. So you have such a diverse uh, audience of people even in church who require diversity in the music. So it's kind of an honor to be here because it's, it's a whole different experience than what I had when I was, you know, raised in the church. Sure. Well, I I lived uh, when I was in the army. I was at Fort Myer, Virginia, and so I'm very familiar with the, the the churches in Washington. And again, when I came back to teach at the University of Maryland, I re uh, so I re-established my ties with those churches. When I was uh, in the Army, I sang at 15th Street Presbyterian and Mount uh, Vernon Baptist. And mm. yes, the, the range of music covered, it covered everything. Covered everything. I mean, when I grew up in Detroit at Ebenezer, we had 
a senior choir that sang the anthems of the classical literature. We had a gospel choir that was magnificent in its performance of gospel music. We had a youth choir. We had children's choir. We had we had a, a complete range of choirs and musicians who could handle all of those musical genres. Today, quite often, many churches, black churches, there's one musical expression, and that's gospel. Now, I know that still in Washington, D.C., yes, you have churches that that have are able to to cover the range of uh, musical styles and present it with 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 class uh, but there are many churches where it's just become sort of a musical one track and i think mm-hmm. that that robs uh, the the uh, congregations of the richness of, of and variety of musical sacred uh, sacred musical uh, expression uh, and but it's, it's again, it comes out of our trying to define what we are, who we are, and what is best within us, and uh, it's, a, it's a it's a process that uh, continues. Well, Mister Shirl, I think you have another calling because you know the church musicians around the world would just sing your praises right now. You need to speak to some of the pastors and the church music programs. I mean, that that is such a valid point. Well, I I try to do <laughs> through interviews and and and, and personal contacts. Uh, I try to do that. I just uh, the past two months I've been involved in concerts in a local church uh, in Detroit, uh, uh, congregational church there, uh, uh, singing uh, with one of our graduates, a young woman named Adrian Webster, who actually uh, just. Uh, took her degree or master's degree from uh, University of Maryland a year ago. Uh, she took her bachelor's at the University of Michigan. And uh, she is from Detroit, and she comes back to perform there. And so Adrian and I gave a joint recital there as a benefit for Bushnell Congregational Church. Uh, so I, and, and I performed, and she did as well, uh, the concert, uh, recital literature, songs of African-American composers, and spirituals. Uh, So it's through activities like that that I try to make a statement in the churches. I'm doing a recital, another joint recital with uh, former students of mine uh, at uh, the Hartford Baptist Church uh, next month as a fundraiser for a uh, a scholarship that I've established for high school students, uh, which focuses on again the art songs of African American composers. So it's through activities like that that I I'm trying in these latter days of my life and my performance life to make people aware of the music of African American composers. That the music that's not heard because it's not commercial. I mean, it's not popular music, and a lot of blacks just don't know that there are composers like William Grant Still and Hale Smith and Coleridge Taylor Perkins and, and Leslie Adams, who write music that's beautiful, that's challenging, that that that's all the good that reflects all of the good things that music should reflect. But it's music that's meant to be performed in in a recital setting and not with a group. Quite often, if I meet young people, they say, and they they know that I'm a singer, the question is, what group do you sing with? (laughs) I say, well, I don't sing with a group. I'm a solo singer or I'm an opera singer. Oh, they don't know what that is. They haven't got the slightest clue. They may have some sense of what they think opera is because of the way opera is is uh, uh, caricatured in in the media. So it's it's a job that I I take on uh, to try to through performance interest young people and older ones who uh, who don't really understand the this kind of musical expression to interest them and to pique their interest to a point where hopefully they will say, well, I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, what, what this music is about. I'd like to learn more about it. 
I want to speak more about your your operatic career, and particularly, I want to touch on uh, the plight of the tenor, and in particular, the plight of the African American tenor. Um, could you maybe speak about the influence of Roland Hayes on your career? Oh yes. Well, I first heard Roland Hayes live when I was a little. I was about eight years old, and he came to Ebenezer Amy Church in Detroit to give a recital, and I'll never forget it. He, along with Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson, were my three musical heroes um, as I was growing up. I later uh, met Hayes. Um, I went to his uh, recital, his last recital at Carnegie Hall, and I had met his daughter, actually, when I was, I think, right out after I graduated from Wayne University in Detroit, I had to sing for the wedding of a fraternity brother of mine. And uh, he or his wife-to-be uh, uh, knew Africa Hayes, and she came to sing uh, this program as well. So I met his daughter before I met him. And I heard his uh, final recital, uh, my well, 1964, uh, I sang Rodolfo on tour with the Metropolitan Opera, and we opened in Boston. And at the uh, end of the first act, uh, there was a knock on my door, and the usher handed me a business card. And on the front of it, on the back of it, was written "Bravo," and I turned it over, and it was Roland Hayes. He was at the performance, and mm. later. I was asked by WQXR FM in Detroit, the New York Times radio station, to conceive a program, an interview program, uh, on, in which I would interview African-American performers. And I, I wrote the show, and I called it Classical Music and the Afro-American. And... On that program, which ran for two seasons, uh, Roland Hayes was one of the people that I'd wanted to interview. And I went up to his home in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, and uh, spent about an hour with him. He'd had a rough winter, and he came down, but he was from his his, his bedroom. He was immaculately dressed, but I could tell that uh, he'd had a rough time. His face was a bit drawn. But when he smiled, he looked like he was about 35 years old. It was amazing. He did not wish to do a recorded interview. Um, but I had the honor of sitting there and speaking with him about his life, about his career, for about an hour. And I eventually put together, and I also had wanted to interview uh, Paul Robeson, but he was very ill at that time, and I couldn't get to him. So I eventually put together uh, a program uh, speaking about these two men and their influence uh, on not only my life, but uh, the lives of all Americans, and especially those of us who aspired to become performers. Uh, and I played recordings of both. But he was a tremendous uh, um, influence on me, I mean, to show what could be done. Now, he came along at a time when things were really <laughs> not that welcoming, for blacks generally, but certainly not a black male. Uh, as a singer of European classical music, he his voice was not a very strong instrument, uh, not operatic in that regard, but there was a delicacy and a, a, a spirituality about his singing that conquered the world. Uh, one of the most incredible uh, Incidences uh, uh, is recounted, I mean, recounted countless times of Hayes, the power of this fairly small physically man, a physically small man, was his debut in Berlin, uh, which took place at a time when uh, Nazi power was beginning to uh, burble and, and rise. And he came out on stage to do a, a leader recital and was met, as soon as he appeared, he was met by a chorus of boos from the audience. And rather than turning around and 
walking off stage. He just stood there in the crook of the piano. He just stood there until they got tired of booing. <laughs> and he turned to his pianist and changed the order of his program. And he started his program with Schubert's Du bist diru, which means mm-hmm. you are repose, you are quiet, you are rest. And when he walked off stage at the end of that recital, the report was that he had a standing ovation. Now that incident speaks to me today, the power of his spiritual presence, which came through, and the power of God's presence through him, which came through his performance. This fairly slight, physically slight man standing there, receiving the boos of the audience before he had a chance to open his mouth, and then walking off with that audience in the palm of his hand. The power of God, the power of honest expression, the power of music, to change people around, to change their ways of thinking. And he was, for me, one of the perfect proponents of the power of the arts. He and Marian Anderson, the same. And Paul Robeson, until the government tried to to ruin his career, kill him, uh, musically. Paul Robeson, the same. So, for me, that legacy has remained powerful throughout my my life. And what I try to do whenever I'm on stage is to perform in such a way that I do honor to that legacy, the legacy of Roland Hayes, Marian Anderson, and Paul Robeson. Um, it's 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 a, a goal every time I open my mouth, and I'll never forget Hayes. He, he was one of God's great gifts to the world. Certainly, he was, and Roland Hayes, uh, for many, was considered the first star tenor at the Metropolitan Opera, and he passed the baton uh, basically to you. So now, my thoughts well, but, but, on but this. Let, and let me make one one correction. Hayes never sang at the Met. He never he, oh, he never okay. sang the Metropolitan Opera. He was not an opera singer. The he may have sung an aria now and then. As a matter of fact, one of the jobs he had early in his performance life was to sing uh, behind the screen in a movie theater. Uh, mm. For uh, He would sing ar- an aria, a, a song, but out of sight. But he never sang operatically. He, his power was in singing song literatures, German leader, French melody, uh, spirituals, American art songs. He was not an opera singer. But he was he was one of the first American superstars in that his career this is an amazing thing. His career spanned the European capitals as well as the United States. But he was not an opera singer. And for him to have that kind to have for him to have that kind of impact on the world without singing operatically, was absolutely amazing. Mm. Absolutely amazing. He was one of the highest paid singers of his time. This little black man... I'm certainly glad that you made that correction because uh, most people, uh, when they think of Roland Hayes because he sang concert leader or uh, in the concert style, they would equate that to being opera. Um, But (laughs) where I was trying to parallel my thought was as far as an African-American tenor, as far as the plight of the African-American tenor, certainly since after you, the only really star tenor that has really pushed through now in this day and age is in the voice of Lawrence Brownlee. Could you maybe uh, talk about maybe uh, why is it so difficult for the African-American tenor to maybe break through as opposed to a bass like Simon Estes or a soprano like Leotine Price? Sure. Well, there was one other. There's one other tenor who has done very well too, and that's Vincent Cole. We can't leave Vincent Who's out. Vincent of Cole. 
Vincent Cole sang with the Metropolitan Opera. He sang, uh, I think, at La Scala. He 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 sang around the world, and uh, had a marvelous career. Uh, the difficulty with tenors is that we have to sing romantic leads, and some people still have a problem with seeing a black tenor singing opposite a white soprano. It's as simple as that. Uh, the other thing that, uh, well, especially, for, that basically is the problem for, for black tenors. So, uh, you know, we're always going to be black. <laughs> There's nothing that's going to change that. Uh, people look at uh, photographs from my career and they'll say, well, hey, you've got, you've got a wig on, you got you know, makeup. Well, yeah, because everybody else had, uh, wears wigs and makeup. I have the, I, I've always retained the right to look as stupid as everybody else on stage. I mean, that's, that's part <laughs> of what the business is about. But I've never worn makeup and a wig to hide the fact that I'm black. I wear, I wore makeup and wig because it was part of what everyone does in the business to uh, look somewhat like the character as it's been traditionally played, and I have that right. Uh, if uh, you know, I'd have a problem if a Caucasian tenor decided to do Otello without putting on dark makeup. Mm. Well, that uh, that's not what the, the show's about. <laughs> it's about the contrast, of black, white, and that 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 contrast and that uh, the, the struggle. So I'd have a problem if a soprano or a soprano who's doing Aida decided to do Aida in white makeup. That's not what it's about. So if Rodolfo or Alfredo are traditionally played as Caucasian. I have a right to play them as a Caucasian and to make myself up to the point where, from the stage, my skin is as light as a Caucasian uh, performer who has to put on makeup to sort of tone their skin down so that it doesn't wash out on stage. Makeup has those two uh, purposes, to keep a darker skin from absorbing too much light so that the face, the features don't read, and a lighter skin tones down so that the face doesn't wash out, so and so so you can't see the features. So, uh, yeah, uh, but still, for many people, the problem is. I mean, they always knew I was black. You know, if they if they didn't know that, then they would see my picture at the old Met uh, in the in the uh, uh, vestibule where where the other artists' pictures were hanging. So it wasn't to hide anything, but it was to enter into the the mood of performance that everyone has to enter into when you go in the theater suspension of disbelief you know you know you're not in paris but you decide to <laughs> go along with that because this is la boheme so you see the scenery you enter into the 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 the, the atmosphere of it all you the audience plays its role which helps you to play yours so the problem with tenor black tenors is that they are who they are and as long as some people are uncomfortable with that if those people are in power then there's going to be a problem in the case of Lawrence Brownlee Larry has just broken that for himself because uh, his manager who was a former student of mine Robert Mirshak told me back in 2002 I think it was he uh, contacted me and said, yeah, I just heard this great tenor, Lawrence Brownlee. He was in the Met Auditions, I think. And uh, uh, Mirshak told me later that uh, he was talking excitedly with another manager at the Met Auditions at that time. And, and was saying how excited he was about Lawrence Brownlee. But this other fellow said, yeah, but he's he's not going to do much. He's not going to go very far. And, and, and Robert said, well, why? what are you talking about? Why? He said, because he's short and black. So there are two uh, counts against Larry that he has just broken. I mean, he, he hasn't let those get in his way at all. And people who appreciate his artistry 
have been strong enough to say, I don't care if you're short and black, the guy sings, and he sings at a star level. So he's having a phenomenal career, and he's a perfect example of what can be done when people are put their prejudices out of the way and, and, and look at value, look at uh, quality. And Larry Brownlee brings the highest value and the highest quality to the stage every time he opens his mouth with incredibly beautiful and secure stylistic singing. And, and he is a pretty good actor, too. So those are, that's what opera should be about. <clears throat> Today, there's much more focus on how people look, unfortunately because of television, because of the movies. You see the Met broadcasts, the simulcasts, and you see people who look great. And sometimes people complain that, well, yeah, but you hear these people in the hall, some of them, and the voices really don't carry that much. And that's unfortunate. When the voice that can sing that role, the voice that the composer had in mind, if that voice is passed over for somebody who does a pretty good job of singing but looks uh, more like someone's view of whom Violetta should look like or Rodolfo should look like, that that gets in the way, from my point of view, of what opera is meant to be. It's first and foremost a singing form. And you let the person who handles the costuming and the makeup and the wigs, take care of the rest of it. Give me the voice that can move me through this music. And traditionally in opera, I mean, some of the actors haven't been that great, but it's what they've done with their voices that has moved me, moved the audiences. But today it's becoming more and more Hollywood, more and more television. you got to look like you're dying of consumption. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes... That person may sound like it, which is unfortunate. So, again, going back to your original concern, uh, singers of color, as will uh, singers who happen to be a little too large from somebody's point of view, a little too short, all of these people, black or white, are going to have a problem with the way things are going these days. You have to have a certain look, and that's what they look for first before they say, well, can you sing? Uh, can you handle this? So it's 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 going to be and continue to be something of a problem. But thank God when someone like Lawrence Brownlee can make people close their eyes if they want to to the look, as did uh, Pavarotti made people close their eyes to the fact that he was, a, say, a bit overweight. <laughs> they listened to his voice. Uh, they didn't care that he maybe wasn't the greatest actor. They listened to his voice. He made his points through his voice, not his size and not his acting ability. And that's what opera is about. And Larry Brownlee, God bless him, is continuing to do that big time. So uh, the other thing that we have to remember is that when someone like Larry Brownlee opens the doors, that doesn't mean that they're going to be open for everybody who follows. It means right. simply that everybody who follows has got to open the door for themselves. And sometimes that will be more difficult because of people's uh, preconceptions. Uh, some people who are really very talented will fall by the wayside, uh, unjustly so, because of the fact that somebody in power refuses to listen to what they bring uh, because they don't like what they see. But everybody has to open the door for themselves and know that if it's going to be in their future for them to do, they're going to do it. If it's not in their future, no matter how talented they seem to be, it's not going to happen. That's the way life functions. That's, that's very real, and that's, that's simply put. Um, you know, when I was preparing for this interview with you, I was trying to find some recorded material, and um, I was on YouTube. There are several videos on there, and I wanted to upload it so I can, you know, broadcast an excerpt of you singing. And one of the things I found actually on, on Amazon was the 1968 recording uh, that you did on the RCA um, 
label for, of most such Kosi Fantuzzi, and and, I, and you actually won a Grammy for that. And I wanted you to maybe talk about the experience of working with such a cast that included Leotine Price, Tatiana Troyanos, and Cheryl Mills. <laughs> it was a great experience. Uh, we had a lot of fun with that recording. Uh, Eric Leinsdorf, the conductor, who was not necessarily known for his sense of humor, was in great spirits himself, and it just it was it was a wonderfully wonderfully uh, uh, shared moment I think in all of our lives. Uh, it was done in London, <coughs> and uh, we we clicked as a cast, and we had a, as I said we had a lot of fun with it. And, is one of the high points of of my career. People like Judith Raskin and uh, Tatiana Troyanos, uh, Ezio Flagello, uh, they're all gone now. And uh, the nice thing about having recording is that they may the, the artists may no longer physically be with us, but their artistry, their voices remain for for uh, all to hear, you know, for years to come. And Every time I hear something from that recording, it just brings back wonderful, wonderful memories. Well, we're almost at the end of the interview, and I want to say uh, thank you so much. Uh, definitely, for, you've been a wealth of knowledge, and, and you certainly shared information. All what this series is about, the Trailblazer series, basically, like you like you said, you put a twist on it that I like. You know, basically, if you want it, you, the door might be open, but it might not be open to you. You have to open your own door, so that's definitely a word of advice. I actually was able to buy um, an excerpt of the rec- of the recording uh, from Amazon. Thank God for technology. They have the clip of you singing "Un Ara Amoroso del Nostro Tesoro" uh, from the recording. I would like to play that um, towards the end as we uh, wrap up the interview. But just in final thoughts, what would you? What final advice would you give? Um, and you perhaps have already touched on it throughout the interview. But what final advice would you give to? an inspiring uh, young musician who wants to be an opera singer, particularly a tenor? Well, Patrick, uh, the best advice I can give is to be super prepared. Make sure that technically, linguistically, musically, and interpretatively, you have it all together so that when you go out to perform, when you go out to do an audition, and you can give the best that you can do at that point in your development, so that even if someone isn't buying at that moment, they hear the potential and will keep an ear open and an eye open for you. As you continue to to grow, make sure that you don't overlook anything in terms of your preparation. You have to, if you're singing in a foreign language, you have to understand what every word means when it comes out of your mouth. Your pronunciation of the languages has to be perfect. Your musical preparation has to be perfect. You can't sing 16th notes when they're actually 8th notes. You can't sing wrong pitches. You must make sure that your technique gives you total ownership of the vocal line so that there's not one moment where the voice does not feel absolutely secure. You have to make sure that the repertoire you choose is the right repertoire for your voice. If you've got a a lyric tenor voice, you don't go out and sing uh, something from Parsifal. You don't go out and sing something from uh, Goethe Demeru. You don't go out and sing something from the heaviest Puccini you can find. You have to make sure that the repertoire that you choose to sing fits your voice and your capabilities. In other words, you want, when you walk out on stage, to give no one an opportunity to say no. You know, that's it's hard <laughs> because you're dealing with people who have likes and dislikes. So that you might go out and sing everybody off the stage, <clears throat> but you might be singing for someone who doesn't happen to like uh, 
the fact that you're a little overweight or that you're a little too short or that you your skin is a little too brown or too light or, you know you you have to deal with that but the best you can do is to make sure that they cannot criticize your technique your languages your interpretation your choice of literature that if they're going to turn you down it's going to be because of their own foibles their own uh likes and dislikes rather than uh, what you want when you walk off stage is for them to say well yeah he sings it beautifully the voice works beautifully the uh, you know musicality the pronunciation all that's great but you know i really don't like the fact that he's too short (laughs) (laughs) he's too dark you know and if it comes down to that there's nothing you can do about it Mm. you know that you've given that piece of music and that composer the respect that they are due, and you want them, you know, even other people to say who heard you, you know, why didn't that guy get the job? So there are those things that we cannot control. We can't control people's individual prejudices, whether they're racial or physical or otherwise. I mean, I've heard people, I've seen a situation where somebody was uh, refused because one of the judges didn't like. Uh, uh, the way they looked, I mean, the dress uh, the, the singer wore, something like that. You can't, you, you know, you just never can tell. So be prepared. Be prepared. Well, that's really wonderful, wonderful advice. And just in closing, I want to thank you so much again for joining me for this very special series. And, and earlier you, you made mention of your fraternity, brother. I think you and I had that in common also. I'm also a brother of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Well, hello, brother. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> I knew there was something to like about you. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that, Mr. Sherman. Again, thank you so much for joining us for this special interview, and thank you so much for all the hard work that you do for preserving, you know, our place in classical music, and, and certainly the work that I've seen over the years, how you've been so active with the National Association of Negro Musicians. Well, that's and uh, thank you so much for that. The NANM is is one of the lifelines of our uh, continuance in this business of performance, and uh, I'm grateful to them. Always have been, and I wish you all the best. And I thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your series. Good luck. Thank to you. you so much, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Again, listeners, that was internationally acclaimed tenor George Shirley, who just joined us for the inaugural interview of the Trailblazer series. And I want to leave you on this note of tenor George Shirley singing Un Aura Amoroso del Nocho Tesoro from Cosi Fantute, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I hope you all have a great day. And tune in for the next installment of Patrick B. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music. Have a great day. <laughs>